judicial circuit. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons having business before this honorable court are admonished to draw near and give their attention as the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this honorable court. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Our first case for this morning will be Flexible Steel Lacing Company against Conveyor Accessories, 192035. Mr. Vincent. May it please the court, Joshua Vincent on behalf of the plaintiff appellant, Flexible Steel Lacing Company, also referred to in the briefs as Flexco. That's the company's trade name. I brought some demonstratives with me just for case the court's interested. On page eight of our reply brief, there is a photograph of a McDonald's Happy Meal box. And that particular picture really kind of crystallizes the difference between the function of an item or a design in the everyday sense of the word and the functionality of a design as a term of art in trade dress infringement cases. And so if you look at that picture on page eight, you'll see that the Happy Meal box has handles that look just like the iconic golden arches that is McDonald's trademark. Those handles serve a function. They allow you to carry the Happy Meal box. But they are not functional because any set of – they don't have to be gold and they don't have to be in the same curved arch as the McDonald's arches. They could be any shape. It could be a square handle. It could be a much more curved handle. They don't have to look like the golden arches. And that's why they're not functional. It's not essential that they look like the golden arches in order for them to perform the function of carrying the Happy Meal box. And so I bring that up because this little center scallop on our metal fastener here, that's our Happy Meal box handle. It serves a function in this case. It reduces the volume of plate material on this fastener. Let me just say, I understand what you're talking about. We have the Bodum case as well. We have other cases. But there's a great deal of evidence in this record that suggests that in the trademark sense of the term, the shape of this scallop, including, if you will, the smile part, was functional. It was part of the 308 patent, your own advertising materials, tout, that it really makes the whole thing work better to do it that way. Now, for the McDonald's box, whether you have handles that are an arch that's a steep arch or a flat arch or that's rectangular, doesn't change at all your ability to carry the box. But here, there's lots of evidence that this is something that affects, to use the traffic's terms, affects the cost or quality of the article. Well, I would respectfully disagree with that, Judge, and the proof of that is in CAI's product. Because CAI has a trapezoidal notch in the same place, not a curved scallop in the center, and 
their president testified, their fastener works just as good as ours. And that's the point. But functional things, there isn't a set of one way that something could be functional. I think your notion is that the only way something can be functional is if it's the only way it can accomplish that task. And that's not the law. No, and I'm not suggesting that at all. You know, there's a difference. You know, there can be different solutions to the same problem that's functional. Right. And that's okay. But here we're only talking about one problem and one solution. Okay. And the problem is that you need a fastener with less surface material and a place for uncompressed rubber to flow when this pinches down on a rubber conveyor belt. The solution to that problem is less surface area and a place for the rubber to flow. It doesn't have to be a curved scallop in the center to accomplish that. And there's lots of examples of that. If you look at page 11 of our brief, there's a Chinese fastener that has an elongated scallop down the center. The shape doesn't make any difference at all. It's simply a need to provide space on the surface, on the flat surface of this fastener, where you can cut away the web of metal and create room for uncompressed rubber to flow. So the shape is not essential. You're not disputing, though, that in your advertisements, you say that your type of scalloped edge, lower fastener profile, extends belt splice life, less effort required for installation, reduces maintenance costs. Those are all functional characteristics. But that's different, Judge, than saying that the reason it performs or works better is because of the shape. The reason it works better is because there's less plate material, there's less metal biting into the belt, and there's a place for uncompressed rubber to flow. It could be any shape. So, yes, we certainly took advantage of the fact that this is an attractive design. It is a scalloped edge, and that's exactly how we marketed it. Exactly. You said you tout the scalloped edge as being the way these functional benefits are achieved. But the reason it works better is not because of its shape as a scallop. It's because that just happens to be the place where we chose to reduce the surface area of the fastener and create the space for uncompressed rubber. Why didn't you say any of this to the Patent and Trademark Office when you were looking for this trademark? As I recall, you didn't even disclose the 308 patent to them initially. Initially, we did not, but we did on our own disclose that later on. On your own or after one of the patent examiners discovered it anyway? No. Well, there was a different patent examiner that had raised it, but we brought it to the attention of the examiner who was dealing with the 326 registration on our own for that very reason. After the other examiner found it? Yes, that's correct. But the point is we did address the question of this shape and whether it was or was not functional in the second declaration that Mr. Westphal submitted. And it explained very clearly that the shape of the center scallop here, the center scallop, did not have to be that shape to achieve better bite and a lower profile because it's physics. If you have less metal being embedded into the carcass of the rubber belt, it's going to be easier to put it on because you're displacing less rubber. But at the same time, you need some place for that compressed rubber to flow up into. It can be anywhere. But can I just say, both of your trademark registrations, the 326 and the 848, describe quite a bit more than this one little bit of the surface of the scallop 
I mean, a scallop well, is an up and down, you know, right? Well, so it's a sine curve sort of. Well, well Judge, the, the 848 talks about the entire perimeter, basically, of the fastener as well as the window. Right, the so nobody was focusing, and that's functional, the entire exterior. Uh, well, as, as, a, as a unit, I suppose you could say that, but the fact is this portion is independently non-functional. But you didn't... And that's a point much. that the, our, your cases make. Your cases make, specialized seating talks about this. The Keene case, for example, uh, where you had the, the stacking letter trays with the hexagon shape on the end of the stacking letter trays. You still needed that configuration for the trays to stack, but you could have a hexagon on it. It wouldn't affect how it works. This, this scallop could be anywhere on this. And in fact, there's examples in the record besides the Chinese one where you can see there's, there's gaps in between these fastener where the rivets are, if you scallop that side out, you're still removing plate material, creating a place for rubber to flow in the center here, and you don't have to. You could have a straight edge on top. You could have a straight edge on top with a, an aperture below it that would create a hole, which again would reduce the surface of the plate and allow rubber to flow there. So it's not. <clears throat> that's the point: is that the scallop is not a the scalp, the shape. No, I understand what you're saying. It's not essential to the use or purpose of this, well, nor does it affect its quality. I don't know. I mean, you said it did have functional values, and what, what's tripping me up is what the Supreme Court said in traffics, that once functionality has been established, once we see that this scallop does have a functional uh, role to play, there's well, no need to engage in speculation about other design possibilities. Well, let's, let's talk about that for one second, because I'm glad you raised that. You know, the, you know, the court has come up with a formula for determining when there is strong evidence of functionality based on a utility patent. And that formula looks at whether the patent discloses a central advance, and that has to match Georgia Pacific, other cases of yours, that has to match the essential feature of the design. All right? This court has never really, this court has never explained what does the central advance mean. I mean, you're not, it's not like you're engaging in patent claim construction in the, any of these cases. No one invited us to do that. No, the, I am not. Congress asked us to defer to the right. federal circuit that, on exactly. claims construction. And so when we're talking about the central advance, this is, a, this is an important case in the court's jurisprudence here. Well, it, it is important because one of the things that concerned the district court as well was the fact that patents are given for a limited term of years, these days 20, uh, might have been 17 at the time you had yours, um, and trademarks are forever. And so if your patent expires and you then find a way of functionally that, extending it for all eternity, you really are not Yes, but my, uh, my point, Judge, is that from the policy. standpoint of the court's jurisprudence, it's critical that the court define what it means by a central advance. Because if you look at the cases where that was found, if you look at traffics, the dual spring design, that was exactly what was trademarked. If you look at a case like Georgia Pacific, the lattice pattern is specifically described in the patents. All five patents said you have to use this particular pattern in order to make the toilet paper bulkier and softer. If you look at a case like J. Franco, the round beach towel, claim number two says, you got to have a round towel if people are going to be able to get up and move around or just move around without having to get up as the sun changes direction. Those were all right in the claims of the, of the patent. Here, there's no claim in, this, in the 308 patent whatsoever that says you have to scallop the edge to achieve a better bite and a, and a lower profile. It does, it does though, have its item number 90 
um, the beveled smile. It's, it's depicted in the patent. I don't deny that. But the fact is that just because the patent specification used the uh, verb, we scallop the edge to reduce plate material and provide a place for uncompressed rubber to flow, uh, and in this, in the, with that smaller fastener, this little guy right here, you know, that was also done to make it fit on an installation tool. So that's different. This one doesn't need to have a scallop to fit on the installation tool, which the is patent... another reason why it's not functional. Well, but I don't no... know. Hang on a second. The patent mentions, it says, with the scalloped edge, 46, there is less plate material spaced right. from the rivet apertures, 32, right. and on and on. Um, right. So you have presented to the PTO this exact design as patentable. Well, from the yes, from, from the standpoint of reducing plate material and providing a place for rubber to flow, but it doesn't say that it has to be this shape to perform that to perform that function. It says it's going to be scalloped. Scalloping the leading edge improves the bite, lowers the profile. That's true. It does, but so does scalloping the sides. So does placing an aperture in the center. There's any number of ways that you can remove the plate material and provide a space for uncompressed rubber. And that, to me, I want to get back to this point of how critical it is to define what is what does it mean, a central advance? Is it is it just the fact that somewhere in the specification it uses the word scalp to describe how the plate was cut? Or does Aren't it have you, to be are, something in the claims? Are you really getting into like obviousness and novelty and utility yes. as you would in the normal patent case? Yes, That's, I think it has to be You obvious. don't have a patent. No. Though. I mean, it's finished. Well, I mean, no, you had one. I agree, Judge, done. but we're talking about whether the uh, what's disclosed in the 308 patent matches the design element that's been trademarked. And it has to be a match. It has to be pretty much a perfect match under the case law that the claims, the novelty of this particular item in the patent has to match the trademark feature. And in this case, what's novel about the 308 patent, this little guy? The novelty is it's called the two-rivet fastener with teeth. And if you read the patent, all it really talks about, the scalloping is like almost an aside. The point was they were trying, and you read the abstract, they tried to create a smaller, lighter weight, medium-duty fastener that would hold you know, as strong as a bigger one. Makes it lighter, less metal, cost less. How did they do it? They put teeth on it. And that's, the, that's why it's called the two-rivet fastener with teeth. That's the central advance of the 308 patent. The central advance of the patent is not that little scallop. It's not that little scallop. In fact, if you looked at the two of these, you'd see the scallops aren't even the same. Okay, But that's the point, is when we're talking about this court's jurisprudence, you don't have a case that explains what is the central advance. Is it, does well, it have to match a claim? you went from a straight beveled leading edge to the scalloped leading edge. Would you agree that if we thought going from straight to scalloped yes. is the advance, then the that part of the scallop is covered? I, I it's certainly. I mean, a how? Component. What are we going to do? Like do it rivet by rivet? I, I. It seems to me you have a strange approach to this. Well, no, it's not straight. I mean, when you look at the other examples, Judge, in the record of uh, fasteners that use different designs, including the defendant's fastener here that use different shapes in order to remove excess metal from the web of metal where these rivets go and create that space for uncompressed rubber. And so it becomes that's just clear competition. That they have their 
design. You have yours, but you can't precisely. prevent them from that's, that, but we're not. copying you. That's precisely my point. We're not preventing any competition because they can come up. It's, as, it's limited only by the creativity of the designer. You can put these bevel or these, these shapes, geometric shapes, anywhere you want on the surface of the fastener and achieve the exact same purpose, solve for the exact same problem. So it's one problem. How do you reduce the metal to get it to bite better? One solution, okay? You, you, you reduce the plate material and provide a place for uncompressed rubber. It doesn't have to be a scallop to do it. It can be any shape. And that's why it's trademarkable and it's not a patent. I'm running down on my time. Um, if you would like to save, save the rest I'll of the rebuttal, that's up to you. I'll save some of it here for my rebuttal. I, I guess before I sit down, I, the thing I would point the court to is the McCarrollades case, okay, which was cited with approval by this court in the Arlington Specialties case. In the McCarrollades case, you know, if you compare that case to Georgia Pacific, both involving uh, paper products and how they're fused together, but in McCarrollades, both the process patent and the, and the product patent, talked about how you fuse the material together and you need spaces where it's bonded together. And they described a pixel pattern, all right? Mm -hmm. But the point was the court found that those pixels could be any shape. They could be hexagons. They could be parallelopeds. They could be any shape you wanted. They would still work to hold the fi fibers together. And that's the exact same point that we're making here. This case is really just like the Carolites. All right. Thank you very much. You want me to leave these up here for you? All right, Mr. Smolzinski. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Smolzinski, I would have went with Mr. Vincent, but counsel already took that one. So. <laughs> Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Vincent Smolzinski on behalf of the appellee, Conveyor Accessories. This court has never been presented with the type and volume of evidence evidencing functionality that it has before it here today. Indeed, the Seventh Circuit has repeatedly affirmed summary judgment, finding functionality on far less evidence. And this makes sense because as this court noted, the threshold is so low for proving functionality that it is often resolvable on summary judgment as a matter of law. As the district court co correctly noted, there's a plethora of evidence that de demonstrates functionality. So, so what's your answer to what I take to be Mr. Vincent's primary point that um, something, I, I guess maybe I'll rephrase, some things have so many solutions like the, you know, the handle on a French press coffee pot, you know, can be, you know, look like a figure eight or I suppose it could look like an arc or it could look squared or it could look whatever, uh, that, that nobody cares what it looks like. So that's the kind of thing that might be a designator of origin, which is what a trademark fundamentally is. And he's insisting that there are just so many ways you could accomplish the function of letting this rubber ooze out that the scallop isn't um, something that we should consider trademark functionality. Well, with all due respect, Your Honor, uh, that position has been rejected not only by the Supreme Court in traffics, where it articulated that once a product feature is found functional under the input formulation, the, the commonly referred to as the traditional rule or the engineering-driven rule of functionality, there's an, alternative designs cannot serve to prove a lack of functionality. So would you define for me then what, what definition of functionality you think this court ought to use? 
With respect to the 326 registration? Well, for anything. I mean, you know, this is a general question of trademark law. So something is functional if blank. The Supreme Court laid that out in traffic, where it said it's essential to the use or purpose of the article, or it affects the quality or cost of the article. And what we have here is the, a clear, uh, a clear uh, both admissions, statements, and legal documents, such as the 308 patent, 20 years of advertising promulgating the functional benefits of the leading beveled scalloped edge, all of which point in the same direction. They all establish that the 326 registration is functional as a matter of law. The fact that it, it matters little how many alternatives could be available. The, this court expressly rejected that argument in specialized seating. So, so in your view, then, under the Supreme Court's traffic's definition, it's functional if it's a wavy scallop pattern for the leading edge. We're not talking about the sides and, and the rest. But it would be perhaps equally functional if it were a uh, dental-type, you know, up and down uh, square corners. But that wouldn't matter because because the first one is functional. It, affect, it affects the cost, quality, use of the product. Correct, and if the evidence demonstrated that that alternative configuration was, also, was functional, then yes, it would, have been, it would be functional, assuming a, um, I believe there's testimony that in this particular context, a fastener actually can't have those 90-degree turns. They have, they have to be radius, just given manufacturing tolerances and, and whatnot. But manufacturing considerations aside, yes, if if it performs that utilitarian function, it, serve, it serves to affect the cost or quality of the article under the Inwood formulation, then it's functional. Traffic doesn't say alternative designs are never functional, and CAA hasn't taken that position. But what it does say, and what the Seventh Circuit has repeatedly echoed in Georgia Pacific versus Kimberly Clark, in specialized seating, in Jay Franco, is that once you get to, once you have that strong evidence of functionality under the engineering utilitarian uh, kind of driven test, Alternative designs don't prove a lack of functionality. The perfect example, um, for example, is the Georgia Pacific case pointed out by uh, opposing counsel. There you had the diamond lattice pattern on toilet paper. And you had utility patents that disclosed the benefits. You had advertising that touted the benefits. The court then went on to say, even if the number of alternatives is, is numerous, is the term that they use, it li matters little. The alternative designs cannot make that particular design any less functional. It's still functional from a utilitarian standpoint and thus falls within the province of patents. Pat trademarks, as Your Honor noted, can serve and protect a particular feature for an indefinite period of time. Thus, the court has to be wary about protecting and stifling innovation for functional features. That's the province of patents. They so is it your view that once the patent expired, um, your client was free to reverse engineer, make as perfect a copy of the flexible steel um, product as one could imagine? Once the patent expires, our client was free to practice domain. the claims. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that once a, and the, the patent law is clear on that. that mm -hmm. the, the term of a patent is, is finite. It's 20 years from the, from the date of filing. After that point in time, it's dedicated to the public. The public is free to practice that, that particular invention. And what's important to know. So you, you're able to look at that and say, gee, you know, it makes sense to have a little loop down there, the smile, so to speak, the beveled smile. Um, and so we're going to do that too. I personally am not, but um, I, I assume my client, my client is, is more than capable of doing so. Um, and what's important to know here is if, if you really compare the cases that have um, stated that alternative designs, once, once a particular feature is proven functional, alternative designs can't prove a lack of functionality, is, is really comparing that to the cases that uh, opposing counsel pointed out, the Bodum case, the McAirlates case. And there, 
the important distinguishing feature is there was absolutely no evidence in the record that actually demonstrated or pointed towards a finding of functionality. Bodum is perhaps a perfect example. There were no utility patents even disclosing the trade dress feature, much less describing the functional benefits of that trade dress feature. There were no advertisements that were promulgated that touted the functional superiority of that particular coffee press maker. And in fact, there was an expert testimony from both sides. Well, it's basically the handle. Nobody was talking about the press part of it in Bodum. Correct, Your Honor. If you do French press coffee, that's what you're going to do. I believe the plaintiff in that case had expressly disclaimed the pole and the press, the plunger part. But what was at issue with that particular trade dress was the feet, the handle, and the domed lid. And what the court pointed out here is that there was no evidence in the record whatsoever that demonstrated functionality. In fact, there was expert testimony that said this particular design was more costly to manufacture. It was particularly complex, evidence that tended to weigh against functionality. Given that there was a complete absence of utilitarian functionality or evidence demonstrating utilitarian functionality, the court then also considered alternative designs to make sure there wasn't a competitive necessity for these particular configurations. There wasn't, by precluding competitors from using this type of handle or this domed lid, it wouldn't stifle competition artificially. So what if we were focusing on the feet? You know, they have these fancy little feet on the Bodum things. And somebody else wanted to have just little spherical dots. But either way, the function that you're achieving is to keep it up off the table a little bit so the coffee pot's not sitting there just flat on the table. That's a function, right? And so why couldn't somebody copy the idea of feet? I think, I believe in Bodum, the case law actually expressly states that you can make a feet in the sense that you can copy and put a functional foot. What was at issue was those particular feet, the ornate feet there. There was nothing in the evidence that demonstrated they performed any better than a standard foot. Well, that's what Mr. Vincent is insisting. There's no evidence that this smile deals with the squeezing of the rubber any better than the Chinese design or various other designs that might be out there. With all due respect, Your Honor, the evidence actually all points directly contrary to that. There is the declarations, which wasn't really discussed in counsel's opening. But I would like to talk about the three-way pen. I believe the appellee's brief with respect to the declarations is clear. There's an express admission by Mr. Westphal repeatedly in multiple declarations that the 326 registration, or at least the product configuration, the central beveled scallop portion, affects quality. He goes on to explain factually how this affects quality. It reduces wear and tear. It lowers the impact on cleaners. It extends the splice life. Those admissions are clear. And Flexco's somewhat rhetorical question that, of course, Mr. Westphal wouldn't have admitted his own functionality is based on the logical fallacy that he would never admit anything contrary to his own interest. What the reality is, he was under oath. The examiner posited the question, mirroring his exact terminology from his prior declaration, where he defined the trade dress as the leading beveled scalloped edge. And the examiner posited half a dozen questions directed directly towards that trade dress. These express admissions under the Inwood test are akin to the plaintiff's declaration in Arlington Specialties, where this court only considered the declaration from that plaintiff's founder and similarly found that that particular feature in the trade dress of the 
I believe it was the dot kits for men's travel bags, was also functional. But turning to the 308 patent, the 308 patent is actually clear in its strong evidence of functionality in this case. Indeed, as this court has noted, utility patents serve as excellent cheat sheets, and the 308 patent serves just that. There were two points that I'd like to address from Mr. Vincent's argument that I think warrant a discussion. The first is that the 308 patent, the central advancer of the 308 patent is not, in fact, what is trade dress. Or I think tied into that as well is the fact that the 308 patent allegedly doesn't claim the 326 trade dress. First of all, that's factually inaccurate, and also it's legally irrelevant. On the factual side, as Judge Castillo pointed out at the district court, Claim 3 does, in fact, claim the contoured outer edge that wraps around, let me pull up, I believe it's in Column 12 of the 308 patent. It claims an outer edge of at least one of the lower and upper plate is contoured to generally follow the contour around the apertures. As Judge Castillo pointed out, that's expressly claiming the scalloped edge. If we turn to Column 10, and certainly Claim 3 does not expressly use the term scallop, but if we turn to the specification, specifically in Column 10, beginning in Line 31, you see that the lower plate, 26 of the fastener herein, is provided with a scalloped or contoured outboard edge, 46. The specification uses the term scalloped or contoured synonymously. It uses it interchangeably, and what we have here is an express claiming of that scalloped edge. And, of course, you can't get a patent unless it is useful and functional, et cetera. You don't get patents for things. Of course, Your Honor. And what we have here in the 308 patent, I think it's important to point out, and I think it serves as an important distinction between the cases such as Bodum or McGarrelay's, is this is not a passing reference to a scalloped edge as somehow achieving this reduced functional benefit. There was a separate design patent here, too, wasn't there? Correct. There's the 749 design patent. What role does that play? The 749 patent, Your Honor, serves very little relevance. From an initial standpoint, it lacks the requisite identity that's required between a design patent and a claimed trade dress in order for it to serve as evidence of non-functionality. But more importantly, the 749 patent doesn't somehow negate the express teachings of the 308 patent. What role does it play, though? It's there. Certainly. Is it an appendix here? I mean, it just doesn't do anything? Lawyers just put it on anyway? No. You know, the 749 patent was presented in opposition. Actually, I believe it was presented as evidence of non-functionality of the 326 or the trade dress. But what it actually demonstrates, and it certainly may show that this later developed fastener turned down the edges of the shoulders in order to improve the bite. But the 308 patent, again, this 749 patent doesn't negate the teaching of the 308 patent, which expressly states it was known in the art to bevel or coin that front leading edge. It was also known that there was a problem with that coined edges and that it needed to sink better. So it removed that material and created a scallop. There was only one embodiment that the 308 patent discloses, and that embodiment is that scallop contoured edge 46. This is not a situation even much like Georgia Pacific, where it was noted there were numerous alternative designs that were disclosed in the Georgia Pacific patent. In that case, that particular diamond lattice pattern in the trade dress was still considered functional. And I think I'd like to – and what I'd like to point out – Before you go on, excuse me. I understand, though, that even with respect to the 749 patent, these trademark applications didn't come in until 
it was on the edge of expiring. Correct. So one could wonder whether there was some link. There certainly could have been. But I think what's important to note is, again, the teaching of the 308 patent, again, this spends nearly an entire column disclosing, not only disclosing the trade dress, because what's clear is the 308 patent not only discloses the verbatim trade dress of the 326 registration, discloses the scalloped edge, and discloses that that scalloped edge 46 is also beveled. That is the exact configuration. The fact that it may not be the identical fastener, again, not only is that factually inaccurate, which we've pointed out in our briefing, but again, it's also legally... Is this two rivet versus five rivet point? Yes, Your Honor. And there's kind of a couple of layers to that. First and foremost, the 326 registration, despite Flexco's repeated attempts to characterize it as a five rivet fastener trade dress, is not limited to five rivets. If you look at, I believe it's Summary Judgment Exhibit 9, it's the 326 registration. The only portion of that fastener that is claimed is that center scallop. The rest of that is in dotted lines, and that's not a part of the trademark. There could be any number of rivets that also utilize that particular center scallop. It's also contrary to the teaching of the 308 patent, which is not limited to two rivets. By its express face in Column 3, where it says, belt fasteners using more than two rivets will fall within the purview of this invention. So it's clear that not only is the 326 registration not limited to five rivets, but the 308 patent is not limited to two rivets. I'd like to also point out that this central advanced argument put forth by counsel has already been decided. There's no need for this court to redefine what the central advance is. One of the arguments was the title of the 308 patent is, in fact, a rivet-hinged fastener with teeth, and that, thus, the central advance of the 308 patent is a rivet-hinged fastener with teeth. If that were, in fact, the case, then Jay Franco wouldn't have been able to look at its patent and decide that the utility patent there was strong evidence of functionality. In Jay Franco, this court dealt with a circular towel for tanning, and it noted that the circular towel provided tanners the ability to rotate 360 degrees over the course of the day, regardless of concerns about skin cancer and whatnot. But the patent there was not directed solely to a circular towel. The title of that patent was actually a towel that converts into a bag, the idea being that you could turn that towel into a satchel, tie it up, and hold it on your back. Even the independent claims, much like the independent claims here, didn't claim a circular towel. It claimed a non-rectangular towel. So the idea that the title or the independent claims somehow lend credence to this central advanced argument is ill-founded. This court has already decided that. The same is true in the Bodum case, which is a case that's relied on by counsel. The court specifically noted in Bodum that, yes, traffics requires the disclosure in the utility patent in some significant way of the trade dress, but it actually includes the parenthetical, not necessarily in the claims. There's no requirement that the particular central advance be claimed in the patent or that it be titled in the patent. It's merely you have to look at the disclosure of the patent, and that's what traffics teaches. And that kind of leads somewhat into the second point, which is this imposed requirement of identity, that somehow the 326 registration, the 308 patent, I'm sorry, is only strong evidence of functionality of the 326 if there's identity between the utility patent and the registration. Traffics is a perfect example why this argument is flawed. In traffics, you dealt with utility patents on a dual spring configuration. In that particular instance, it was a dual spring configuration for a rectangular sign. They were located on opposite ends of that lower plane of the rectangular sign. The trade dress at issue was related to a dual spring configuration that would attach to a single corner, much like 
triangle or perhaps a diamond-shaped sign. And that was actually one of the arguments posited by the plaintiff there. The plaintiff said, well, the utility patents only cover this particular configuration of dual springs. The trade dress is for this clearly different configuration of dual springs. This is an evidence of functionality. The Supreme Court said that matters little. That makes no difference. What matters is what does the utility patent teach? And what we have here is within the 308 patent, there's a clear disclosure of the trade dress in the 326 registration. There's a description of the functional benefits of both beveling and scalloping that leading edge. And there's the claiming of the scalloped edge in Claim 3. You know, in sum, Your Honor, it's apparent that Flexco is attempting two very Herculean tasks. First, they're attempting to re-rate longstanding precedent from the Supreme Court and the Seventh Circuit on the significance of alternative designs. As this Court has repeatedly stated, once functional under that Inwood formulation, alternative designs do not negate that functionality. You can't bring a patented feature that falls within the province of the patents back into the realm of trademarks simply because there's other ways of doing it. The second Herculean task Flexco attempts is to really revise a number of documents, all of which point to the same thing. Essentially, the declarations don't actually say what they say. The 308 patent doesn't say what it says. Twenty years of advertising that all say the same thing don't say what they say. But they all lead to the same refrain and the inescapable conclusion that the 326 registration is functional as a matter of law. The district court's decision or the granting of summary judgment was thus proper and should be affirmed. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Vincent. I want to put aside this case for a second because I have to tell you what I'm really most concerned about is the law in this circuit. And when do you have a question of fact on the issue of is there strong evidence of functionality? You know, there's a spectrum of the cases. And on the far end, I agree, is Bodum, where there was virtually nothing in the patents that were discussed. And at the other extreme, you have something like Georgia Pacific, where it says you have to use this particular shape in order to accomplish this. But then you have Arlington Specialties saying functionality, that the bar for functionality is so low that it can often be decided as a matter of law. Yes, but that's only if the patent says you have to do it this way for it to work. And that's the crux of defining what is the central advance of the patent. And that's the problem in this case. But that would be a high bar. No, that would not. That is not. That is how you determine what is the central advance in order to achieve this parity between the patent and the essential feature of the trademark. And that's what this court has never defined. I'm sorry, Judge, I don't mean to speak over you, but I only got two minutes left. No, I understand. Never mind. But my concern is that when you're looking at the spectrum of cases in this area, when do you have a question of fact that warrants summary judgment? When don't you have that question of fact? Where is the strong evidence? You've got to define central advance. And in all the cases where you have found that parity and it's strong evidence and the bar has been low are situations where the patent says you need to use this shape for it to work. When you look at a case like McCarroll-Aids out of the Fourth Circuit, they talked about shapes in there, the different shapes of the pixel patterns or the little beads, but they didn't have to be that pixel shape in order to work. And that's why the court found there was a question of fact. And so we're not going to be engaging in patent claim construction in these cases, but you do need to make it clear to the bench and the bar when do you have a question of fact and when don't you, and that all keys off of what is the central advance. And in this case, you can talk to Mr. Smolzinski's blue in the face about the fact that it says you scallop the edge, but the patent doesn't say you scallop the edge. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to both counsel. We'll take the case under advisement.
There is nothing in the patent that says you have to scallop the edge in this shape for it to work this way. And that's the crux of this case. That's the key. That's why this case is like McGarrelade's, where they said pixel pattern, but you could use hexagons or any others. Doesn't have to be any particular shape to work, versus Georgia Pacific, where all five patents said you got to have this diamond-shaped lattice pattern to get bulkiness, non-nesting, and softer toilet tissue. Okay? And that's, to me, the most important thing about this case is the law and the circuit and defining the spectrum. You know, at the broad end where you got traffics, McCarrelades, Jay Franco, clear as a bell that if it isn't done this way, it won't work. Our patent doesn't say you have to do this shape for it to work. You just have to reduce the plate material. You cut it any way you want. I understand, but I just, I'm going to interject and say the Supreme Court doesn't say that you have to show that this is the only way the patent will work. That's a hurdle for you. I agree, but they do use that term central advance, and that's what we need to know what that means. If you're going to say central advance equals essential feature, strong evidence. Thank you, Mr. Vincent. Thanks to both counsel. We'll take the case under advisement.